Hi, everybody. Welcome to my last live European podcast. My four-week vacation is coming to an end tomorrow morning. Uh, my wife and I are going to be returning to the United States. We fly back into uh, New Jersey, and then we drive uh, to Connecticut. You know, the last stop prior to being in Athens, where I am right now, was in Santorini, and it really is beautiful. It's been a long time since I've been to Santorini, and uh, it is the most beautiful of the Greek islands, I think, of the ones I've been to. And so if you're looking for a place to go uh, in Greece, uh, I would highly recommend it. You know, it is very hot here right now. Uh, there's a heat wave. I tried to visit the Acropolis. We, we went to the museum, which the last time I was actually in Athens was a while ago. This museum was not even here. So I was able to see this museum this time. It really is a good museum. But I wanted to take my wife up to the top uh, of the Acropolis, where you have the Parthenon and some other structures up there, you know, thousands of years old. Yes, it's very hot. Uh, but uh, we, like a lot of other tourists who were here, uh, were lined up at 530, which was when uh, the Acropolis was supposed to reopen. And we were informed that the government workers who collect the tickets. And we'd actually already bought our tickets that day. We went online, you know, to skip the line. We, we paid for the tickets to, to climb up, uh, up top there. And we were informed uh, by other tourists. There was no official mention. They didn't even bother uh, to, you know, put up a post that government workers decided to go on strike because it was too hot. Now, I, I, I read an article about it and these government workers were claiming it was 113 degrees. It wasn't anywhere near 113 degrees. I was there. I was looking at, you know, my weather app and it was 98. You know, it was, you know, obviously it was warm. But from what I could tell, the government workers were going to be in these uh, little, you know, rooms that were sheltered. They were in the shade. Maybe I don't know if they had air conditioning or they had fans, uh, but it wasn't that hot. I mean, there were plenty of tourists that were going to brave the elements to pay money to climb up to the top, you know, and we had been walking around all day uh, in that heat. Uh, you know, it's not that bad. And of course, if any of them had to stand in the sun, they could have, you know, had a, an umbrella, you know, parasol, whatever, and they could have uh, stayed in the shade. It wasn't that big a deal. You know, there are plenty of private sector workers who showed up to work in Athens. It wasn't like, you know, nobody was in the stores. You know, we, we were going to restaurants. Uh, somebody had to deliver the food. Uh, so people who, you know, collect paychecks in the private sector, they had no problem uh, braving the elements. But these government workers just decided that they're going to take advantage of the hot weather to have a vacation with pay and really don't care, you know, about the customers. And, you know, this is another problem with government and socialism. In capitalism, the customer is always right because the customer can take their business someplace else. And when you are running a business, you need customers. You can't piss off your customers. Even if they're wrong, they're right. That's where the expression comes from. You got to suck it up, right? And you got to accommodate the customers if you want them to keep coming back. Because under capitalism, it's all voluntary. 
none of your customers have to do business with you. They can do business with one of your competitors. And so you got to treat them nice. Even when they're wrong, they're right. The beauty of capitalism, right? Everybody is out to please you. Everybody wants to satisfy you because they don't want to lose your business. But government is all about force and coercion. They don't give a damn about the customer, the taxpayer. So when you have a government-run uh, attraction, um, doesn't matter. They could be as rude as they want. They could just you know, not show up. You had a lot of people, very disappointed people, who came to Greece, came to Athens. They wanted to see this attraction. I talked to several people. You know, who couldn't come back tomorrow just in case these government workers decided they didn't want to go on strike. Same with, you know, my wife and I, we're leaving tomorrow morning. So this was our one opportunity, you know, to see this, you know, attraction. It's not like we're in Athens all the time. You know, we're, you know, it's a long way to travel to get down here. And there are some other people that, you know, may never come here again. Uh, and they wanted to, you know, Go up there. You would think tourism is a is a big industry in Greece, uh, but again, governments don't give a damn. It doesn't matter. It's not their money. They couldn't care less. It's the taxpayers' money. They don't care if you take your business someplace else. You know they don't make any money on it. See, if I'm a businessman, I, I need to earn a profit. I need to stay in business. I'm going to make sure my workers show up and my workers know that they need to keep me in business so they can keep their jobs. Right. The workers understand how important the customers are, because without the customers, they don't have a job. But when you work for government, it doesn't matter about the customers. The taxpayers are going to pay your salary, whether you have any customers or not. Right. That's why, you know, you go to the post office, although even postal workers, I think, will work in the hot weather. Right. That's, you know, their motto. I mean, it's sleet and gloom of night or I forget what the postal service motto is, but they don't care about the temperature. So they'll deliver the mail even if it's hot, uh, but if you you know if you work uh, you know in, in in Athens you know the hot weather is 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 your your ticket to uh, to a day off. But the the government workers it doesn't matter. They can't lose their jobs if they lose their customers because they're going to get paid no matter what. They're going to get paid by the government. The bill is being passed on to the taxpayer. So that is a little lesson today. You know I recorded a a short Instagram. Uh, I don't know if you don't follow me on Instagram, you should do that. I mean, you know, I come up with uh, some interesting stories that, 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 I, that I put out there on Instagram. I don't have nearly as many Instagram followers. I have over a hundred thousand of them, uh, but it's nothing like, you know, close to the million followers I have on Twitter. Uh, but it's still worth following me over there because I put up some interesting uh, content like the, the video that I did, uh, you know, live today uh, from the foot of um, uh, the Acropolis. You know, some people have been following my wife on Instagram and, and she posts a lot more stuff. A lot of our vacation is up there, although a lot of the stuff are stories. So they're only up for 24 hours. So, you know, it, it, they go away. I don't know, maybe she'll post some longer uh, videos. I know a lot of people who follow me have followed her, but most people haven't figured out, you know, which... Uh, uh, which site uh, is hers? Um, uh, but if you're able, if you're able to do that, you you can you know, see a little bit more of uh, my vacation. I think it's Metaphor Love or something like that is uh, is her handle on uh, on Instagram. Anyway, I want to uh, 
kind of get into today's podcast, uh, though. First, I want to talk a little bit about the markets because we finally saw some weakness in the NASDAQ, mainly yesterday. It was on Thursday, although the NASDAQ actually dropped again today. It wasn't a big decline, but on the heels of yesterday's big decline, the fact that we didn't get a bounce in the NASDAQ may be significant. And in fact, the NASDAQ was the only a major U.S. stock market index that was um, negative on the week. And in fact, intra-week, the NASDAQ again set a new high. Uh, and all the indexes, you know, the Dow, S&P, they, they, they made 52-week highs. But the NASDAQ was the only one that, um, that, that closed the week negative. Again, you know, it, it didn't get killed. I, I mentioned this in the last podcast that it looks like we may be eking out a top here in the NASDAQ. And the news that disappointed the markets yesterday, uh, I think came from Taiwan Semiconductor. Um, and they basically warned that sales were going to be weaker than they thought. Now, this really threw some cold water on the AI narrative because, you know, they make chips. And, uh, you know, there's supposed to be a lot more demand for chips when everybody is ramping up uh, AI. And, and so this kind of let some air out of that bubble and we saw a, a big drop. But also we saw warnings, I think, coming out of Netflix, which had a big drop on the day, Tesla. So, you know, different companies in different, you know, aspects, uh, all, uh, you know, warning or having problems that they're looking at. And so that weighed on, on, on the NASDAQ. And so we'll see if we get some more follow through next week. Again, I've been talking about the fact that the market is way overextended on this podcast, but also more importantly, the market is still not coming to terms with the reality of inflation. In fact, another good example of the inflation problem is, is in Japan. And again, not that many people are talking about the inflation problem in Japan. And it's not just the inflation problem, it's the interest rate and government debt problem. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. I want to take a quick break uh, for the first commercial and I'll be right back. So don't go anywhere. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. I'm talking about inflation in Japan. And the most recent data coming out of Japan for CPI in June is a year-over-year increase of 3.3%. And that is actually a tenth higher than the year-over-year -year rate in May. So based on the Japanese CPI, uh, we're, we're, we're getting even higher inflation. So inflation is going up. And it 
on the um, on the core, though, there was a slight decline in the June numbers from 4.3 to 4.2. But still, now you're talking about core inflation, right, in Japan, better than 4%. Now, for years, the Japanese government was telling the Japanese people that the problem in Japan was not enough inflation. Of course, that wasn't the problem. That was one of the bright spots of the Japanese economy, that at least they didn't have a rising cost of living, or at least the cost of living was rising uh, very slowly. But the Japanese government said, no, 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 we need more inflation. The only reason we don't have a stronger economy is inflation was too low. That was the lie that they continued to tell. And under the pretext of that lie, the Bank of Japan printed tremendous amounts of Japanese yen and used that Japanese yen to buy up government bonds. And that enabled the Japanese government to go into debt selling those bonds to the JGB. The problem now is that they've succeeded beyond uh, you know, their expectations in raising the inflation rate because their goal was 2%. Well, they've clearly overshot it. In fact, based on the official numbers, this is the first time in eight years that headline inflation in Japan is higher than the U.S. because our headline number, not our core, just the headline, is 3%. So in Japan, you're at 3.3. That's 10% greater. But what happened the other day is the Japanese government or the Bank of Japan came out and reiterated their commitment to achieving their 2% inflation goal as if they haven't done it yet. Apparently, the Bank of Japan is still not convinced that inflation is high enough to qualify for 2%, even though we're at 33 and rising. And so to make sure that we've got 2% inflation and it's here to stay, even though it's 50% higher than that, the Bank of Japan is committing itself to maintaining negative interest rates. They still have short-term interest rates, negative 10 basis points. In the face of rising inflation, well north of 2%, they still have the pedal to the metal saying we need more inflation. We're not convinced that inflation is here to stay. And in fact, the Bank of Japan reiterated their commitment to control the yield, yield curve control, on the 10-year JGB to keep yields below half a percent. Now, the yields half a percent, inflation is 3.3%. What idiot would lend money to the Japanese government for 10 years at 40 basis points when inflation is 330 basis points? Well, no idiot. That's the problem. The only ones dumb enough to buy those bonds is the Bank of Japan. But they know that if they take away the yield curve control, if they stop creating more inflation, then yields are going to spike. And that's going to force the Japanese government into a untenable predicament because they won't be able to make the payments on the debt. And there's going to have to be a massive day of reckoning in Japan. And so to avoid that political decision, the Bank of Japan is continuing to create more inflation, claiming that there's not enough. Now, at some point, the markets are going to stop believing the Bank of Japan. In fact, the Japanese yen fell about you know, one and a quarter percent on, on this announcement, but we haven't had a complete collapse yet of, of the Japanese yen. 
But as the markets start to see through this charade, it is going to put tremendous pressure on the Bank of Japan. But the reality is the United States is in even a worse predicament than is Japan because of our twin deficits. Japan still operates with a trade surplus and Japan is still a creditor nation. The United States is the world's biggest debtor nation. We owe a fortune to Japan. The Japanese government holds over a trillion of U.S. treasuries. So one way the Japanese can try to alleviate their problem is by dumping those treasuries. They can sell those treasuries and then use the proceeds to pay down some of their own debt. We don't have that luxury. You know, we, we owe everybody. We're not we're not a creditor like Japan. But the Bank of Japan is already trying to spare Japanese politicians from having to make these difficult choices that they would have to make if the Bank of Japan were to allow rates to rise. Well, the Fed is going to be in a similar predicament soon. Yes, the Fed has been able to raise rates. We got interest rates up to 5%, but we really can't move them much higher because we've already seen the adverse consequences in the banking sector. We've already seen the failure of three or four major banks. Many more banks would have also failed, but for the government backstops. But if the Fed continues on this trajectory, uh, the government might not be able to provide this support. And a lot of these banks uh, that have you know, gotten a reprieve are going to fail. In fact, more negative news in the commercial real estate market. I was reading about more high profile defaults uh, on commercial real estate. Um, Sterling of, uh, what is it? Um, Greenlight, I forget for uh, the name of the company that um, they operate all these, you know, hotels and um, they, you know, just couldn't make their payments on a couple hundred million dollar uh, loan uh, on a piece of property uh, with big warnings out there about the commercial real estate sector and all of this debt. I think it's like a half a billion dollars of debt coming due in the next year, several billion over the next few years. And there's not going to be any way to finance this because the value of the collateral has already collapsed. And again, I've been warning about that for years and years when so many people on Wall Street were looking forward to rising interest rates because they thought that rising interest rates would help the banks earn more money because they could charge higher rates. I was one of the few people pointing out the damage that higher rates was going to do to their balance sheets, to their assets, to the loans, uh, the long-term loans that they had already committed to, all of the treasuries and mortgage-backed securities that were on their books. And so all of these chickens are coming home to roost right now. And this is putting a lot of pressure on the Fed. In fact, I was reading an article today on, on rents. And Moody's, uh, you know, has been tracking rents for about 20 years. And they're looking at, um, you know, what the typical homeowner uh, pays in, in interest on, or not in interest, in rent. 
as a percentage of, 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 of his income. And when they first started keeping track about 20 years ago, the average renter spent 23% of his income on rent. And 10 years ago, that was up to 26%. Today, it's now a record 30% of monthly income going to pay the rent. Now, this is also pre-tax income. So obviously, your after-tax income is diminished. But they're just looking at your pre-tax income, which is not really your take-home pay. But of your pre-tax income, people are spending 30% of that on their rent. Now, what does this mean? This means that people have less money left over for other things. Or if they're trying to save up a down payment to buy a home, well, they have less money available to do that if they're spending more on their rent. But that's not your only cost if you're you know renting renting an apartment is is the rent because you also have to pay utilities and those uh rates have been going up so there there's other costs that a renter is going to have to pay that relate to renting a place and all that stuff is going up and this is evidence of a diminishing standard of living that is why a lot more people have to take second and third jobs because more of their income is going to rent. Now, 30% is the average. That means that there are some people who are actually paying a lot more than 30% of their income on rent. And that is a that is a big number. But, you know, I was reading this article too. It was more of an advertisement, really, disguised as an article from a company that's in the mortgage business. And they're trying to persuade people to buy homes because of course, when you buy a home, you take out a mortgage. Now I did read too that turnover in the housing market is now also at a record low because there's a huge spread right now between what sellers want for their homes and what buyers can afford to pay. Because the sellers are still looking at prices from a year or two ago, but buyers can't afford those prices because mortgage rates are so much higher than they were a year or two ago. So there's a big disconnect between what sellers think their homes are worth and what buyers can actually afford to pay for those homes. So it's a huge spread. And so right now what's happening is just there's no transactions because the sellers don't want to come down. The buyers can't come up. Right. So it's like a deadlock. And so you're seeing minimal turnover in, in, in houses. And again, another thing, and I pointed this out, was that a lot of people, one of the reasons they don't want to sell their homes is because they can't buy another one because they can't port their mortgage. If you've got a 30 year fixed rate mortgage on a home, the only way you can keep that mortgage is to stay in your home. If you sell and try to buy a different home, well, you're going to have to get a brand new mortgage at a much, much higher rate. So that has really frozen a lot of people in their in, in their current homes. And that may be a reason too, that people uh, may even pay a mortgage if they're underwater, because what they're really trying to preserve is not their home, but their mortgage. That's their great asset in that they've borrowed all this money on the cheap and they have you know 25 years or how many years left 
uh, to pay it back. But I know I got to take one more commercial break. I'm going to finish up with this topic and then I'll move on to another one. So uh, stick around. I'll be right back. I am back. Oh, and I remember the name Barry Sternlich. <laughs> I was trying to remember the at, at Starwood Capital Group. He's the, the the executive that reported the default on a two hundred and twelve million dollar uh, commercial uh, real estate loan. He basically described what he think is coming in the commercial real estate sector as a Category Five hurricane. But I want to get back to. Uh, what I was talking about, this advertisement uh, by this um, by this company, uh, this mortgage company, uh, trying to encourage people to buy homes. And the, the article talked about five reasons that you want to buy right now. And I want to focus just on two of them. So the first reason was appreciation. Uh, they said that as home values appreciate, homeowners grow their net worth making a home not just a place to live, but potentially a smart investment as well. Now, they're focusing on the potential for the house to appreciate, but they're ignoring the possibility that it goes the other way. Houses can go down in value, not just up, especially if you're in an environment like the one we're in right now, where real estate prices went way up because of low mortgages. Now that mortgage, mortgages rates have gone up, it stands to reason that eventually home prices have to drop because homes are unaffordable at today's prices given uh, the current mortgage rate. We've got yesterday's prices rather, but today's uh, higher rate. So unless you think mortgage rates are gonna go back down, the only way for homes to become affordable is if home prices go down instead. Because what determines the amount that you can pay for a home, most people, is the monthly payment. So it's not the price of the home, but the size of the monthly payment. That's what homeowners are shopping with. And so they figure out how much they can afford to pay. And that's what they can pay. And those monthly payments are a function of the mortgage rate. So the higher the mortgage rate, the lower the price of the house in order to make those mortgage payments possible. So when you're encouraging people to buy homes today and you're telling them that they're going to get rich because the price of the house is going to go up, that's very misleading because there's an even stronger possibility that the price of that house is going to go down. And so to avoid that loss, renting is actually a good alternative. For a lot of people in today's market, renting is better than buying. And what, of course, these realtors over always overlook is if you could save money renting, <clears throat> you can take that savings and invest it. <clears throat> See, this article <clears throat> was claiming that by buying a house, you're, you're, you're making a smart investment because you're building up equity. Well, maybe you're not building up equity. Maybe you're throwing your money away. Maybe the way to build up equity is to rent something for less than the cost of buying it and then invest the savings and build equity that way. But the other uh, reason that they listed, and this is the one I really wanted to discuss because it really annoyed me when, when I read this. The article claimed that if you rent, 
I mean, if you buy, you can protect yourself from rising rents. The article talked about how rents are going up. And of course they are right now. Rents are taking up, as I just said, 30% of the average income. And according to this uh, mortgage lender, the way you protect yourself from rising rents is to go out and buy. And I'm reading from the article said, unlike renting, where your money goes to a landlord each month, homeownership allows you to invest in a tangible asset. By owning a home, you are building long-term wealth and securing your future. It says, with rent price, oh, no, no, this is the part I wanted. That was on the appreciation. With rent prices on the rise in many areas over recent years, it can be difficult for renters to stick to a budget. By purchasing a home, however, it's possible to secure a predictable monthly payment that remains steady over time and escape the cycle of increasing rent. Now, this is outright fraud. You know, I mean, if if a brokerage firm tried to, you know, market something like this, you know, the SEC or FINRA, right, would be all over them. But apparently the government doesn't have any rules when it comes to real estate. You can pretty much say whatever you want uh, and get away with it. But to claim that you have stability in payments by buying a home, that if you rent, right, that is an uncertain uh, uh, expense, but you can have certainty by being a homeowner. It's actually the opposite. Sure, the landlord could raise your rent, but once your rent is raised, you pretty much know that for the next year, your monthly payments are exactly what your rental agreement is. And even if your landlord raises your rent the following year, again, your monthly payments are fixed during the course of that yearly rent. And in fact, you might be able to negotiate a two-year or three-year rental agreement with your landlord. And of course, if your lease is up and your landlord tries to raise your rent by too much, you can rent something else. You can move. You're not stuck. It's pretty easy to move out of an apartment that you've rented, right? It's no big deal. Get your deposit back. You know, you're fine. You can move someplace else. And of course, usually if you've been a good tenant and you've been paying your rent on time, your landlord is probably not going to really jack up your rent because he doesn't want you to go because good tenants are hard to find. They're worth something. And so landlords usually try not to raise rents too much if they have a good tenant because they don't want to risk losing that tenant. They don't want to take a chance right on a vacancy and now trying to find a new tenant, even if that new tenant may pay a higher rent, how do they know they have no history with that new tenant? And it's very risky in some markets. You know, you can rent to somebody and then they just decide not to pay. And it's very hard to evict them. Uh, so I think if you're concerned about having a steady, predictable housing cost, home ownership is the last thing that you'd want to consider because this article focused on one thing, the mortgage payment. Yes, if you get a fixed rate mortgage, then your mortgage is predictable and fixed. But when you own a home, that's not the only cost. First of all, you got property taxes. 
They can go up every year. How do you know what's going to happen to your property tax? In fact, they probably will go up. Number two, insurance. You own a home. you got to insure that home, especially if you have a mortgage. The, the bank requires you to have insurance. Insurance rates are going up all the time. But the biggest wild card when it comes to home ownership, and anybody who owns a home can verify this, is the maintenance, repairs, unexpected costs that can be huge. You can have a home and all of a sudden something goes wrong and it costs you $5,000, $10,000, $20,000. That is a big problem for a lot of people who are living paycheck to paycheck. You don't have that problem when you are a tenant. That is your landlord's problem. If something major goes wrong with the place that you're renting, you just call up the landlord. He's got to fix it. It's not your problem. It's the landlord's problem. But when you own your own place, it's all your problem. And that's why so many people get in over their head. They're kind of suckered in to buying a home when they don't really have the resources to afford one because homes are expensive. They're not necessarily your ticket to instant wealth. They can be a money pick. They can drain you of wealth. Yes, during an inflationary time period, uh, when rates were artificially low, you know, you had periods of time where real estate prices went up. But there are also periods of time where real estate prices can go down. And we are living in one of those periods of time. Even though it's an inflationary time period, real estate prices are going to deflate because those prices were a function of cheap money, of artificially low mortgage rates, easy credit. Those things are changing. And so the dynamic of home ownership is also uh, changing, but it's very frustrating to read this kind of stuff, knowing that people are getting suckered into uh, buying properties that they can't afford, especially if they think they're doing it to avoid <laughs> the, the, you know, a, an uncertain, uncertain uh, housing expenses. When the real way to avoid uh, uncertain expenses is to rent. That's the only way to make sure that you have some type of predictable uh, cost. And as I mentioned, it's easy to get out of a, a lease. Your lease is up, you move on. Not so easy to get out of a home. You own a home, you got to sell it. You got to find a buyer. And as I said, right now, there's not that many buyers out there. So you could be stuck, right? You might have a job offer in another town or another state and you may have to reject that because you're stuck in your house and you can't sell it. But if you're renting, yeah, it's very easy to take a better job offer because you just don't renew your rent. You just leave. And even if you leave a few months early, you have to you know, pay a little penalty to break your lease. It's no big deal. Nothing compared to what happens when you own a home and you are stuck with that home. So it's all these realtors and mortgage bankers that are overselling. Uh, the concept of home ownership. It makes sense for some people in certain circumstances, uh, but for a lot of other people, uh, the best thing they can do is is rent. But I want to move forward and talk a little bit more uh, about, about politics because I was watching this evening, right? Even after, you know, I, I'm home from dinner and I'm watching on YouTube the hearings that we had today uh, in the House. And this is 
on uh, censorship in social media. And one of the witnesses was Robert Kennedy Jr. And to see the way he is being attacked, not by the Republicans, right, but by members of his own party, the Democrats. In fact, in particular, I think the worst one was this Deborah Wasserman Schultz, who is from Florida. And a big part of the the current attack on uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. And again, you know, I have very different political views. Uh, Kennedy is a typical Kennedy. I mean, he believes in the social welfare state, big government, a Democrat. Um, and, And so I'm a free market libertarian. So we really are at odds with one another. Uh, with that respect. But where we have some strong common ground is freedom of speech, freedom of expression. And we both know that the most important speech that needs protection is political speech, in particular, speech that is critical of the government. That's when free speech is the most important. Your freedom to criticize the government And also, free speech is about protecting unpopular speech. Because popular speech, that doesn't need any protection. If you're just going to say something that everybody likes, well, fine, you you can say it. Where you need protection is when you want to say something that a lot of people don't like. Right? There is an old expression, I may disagree with what you say, but I will defend uh, your right to say it. Today, it's the opposite. I disagree with what you're saying and you have no right to say it, right? That's what the left is now all about. In fact, on uh, the panel, somebody pointed out and then uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. reiterated uh, because one of the women that was up there was from the American Civil Liberties Union. And again, I, 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 I disagreed with a lot of what they did, but at least they were on the right page when it came to freedom of speech. I mean, they would they would defend the right of a Nazi to free speech. And you have to do that. You have to defend speech that you don't like, because if you're not willing to defend speech that you don't like, that you don't believe in freedom of speech, and eventually it's your speech uh, that's not going to be allowed. But again, the most important speech that needs to be uninhibited is when you're critical of the government. So when the government says something or does something, you have to be able to criticize it. And what's been going on with social media was the coordinated effort on the part of government and social media to suppress speech that contradicted the government or a government narrative. And that's precisely the type of speech that needs to be protected the most. Even if the government is right, even if what the government is saying is right, you have to be able to criticize the government. Because if you can't criticize the government when they're right, well, then you definitely won't be able to criticize them when they're wrong. And if the government knows that they can't be criticized, then that opens the government up. They have a lot more opportunity to be oppressive if they don't think there's any way to speak out against it. So you always have to be able to question the government. You can't say, well, it's so important. This piece of information, like when it comes to COVID, it's so important that nobody should be able to criticize the government during this important time. You cannot... Um, give up that principle just because it's convenient. 
And um, Robert Kennedy Jr. was doing a good job of making that point. But this Deborah Wasserman Schultz, if you go and you can watch this on YouTube. So she is basically quoting Kennedy out of context, right? There's all this footage of him. He's, uh, you know, having dinner. He's speaking with some people. And he's talking about actual studies that showed that uh, COVID um, genetically, that Ashkenazic Jews and I think Chinese, you know, for whatever reason, statistically were less susceptible to, to, to COVID than, let's say, whites or African-Americans, whatever it was. But he wasn't making a point that he personally believed that uh, the COVID virus was designed intentionally to spare those groups. That was not the point he was trying to make. But if you took part of his conversation out of context, you could make it appear that that's the point he was trying to make. Because you can always take somebody out of context and not let people see the totality of what was being said. You can pull out something, you know, which has been done to me on many occasions, you know, with 60 Minutes or The Daily Show. You know, you you could make anybody look bad if you just, you know, you just take some words, but you don't show the proper context with which those words were spoken. So that's what they're doing with, 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 with Kennedy. So Deborah Wasserman Schultz is basically putting all these words into Kennedy's mouth. He's sitting there, right, trying to set the record straight. Excuse me, but that's not what I said. Let me tell you what I said. And she won't let him talk. In fact, she'll ask him a question and then interrupt him if he tries to answer it and say, I want my time back. I mean, she doesn't want him to set the record straight. She wants to distort the record. And that's what every single Democrat is doing. Why do they want to vilify this man so much? Why do they want to turn him into some kind of racist, uh, anti-Semite? I mean, there's probably nothing about this man uh, that is racist or, anti- or, or, you know, or anti-Semite. I mean, again, I disagree with a lot of his politics, but I think he's sincere. I think he's an honest guy. I don't think he's um, in any way a racist or, you know, however they want to portray him. But they want to label him this because they want to protect Joe Biden, right? Because he is running against their guy. And so, therefore, he's now the enemy because he is against the establishment. And he is calling out a lot of the problems in the Democratic Party. He's pointing out that the Democratic Party has changed. And it's not the Democratic Party that that he grew up with. Uh, you know, where his father and his uncle were the standard bearers. And I agree, the Democratic Party is even worse. Not that I was a big fan of that Democratic Party. I didn't like them either. But the one we got now is even worse. And the problem is that Kennedy is calling out the Democrats from the Democratic Party. And so they all have to coalesce and agree to vilify him and, and try to turn him into this, you know, anti-Semitic, homophobe, whatever it is, uh, in order to discredit all the legitimate things that he has to say. And, you know, one of the other interesting things about, about this hearing, and first of all, the ironic part about it, I think it was, it, it was pointed out, is that the hearing was about censorship 
And the Democrats actually wanted to censor Kennedy as a witness. They didn't even want to let him talk. They said he was too racist and anti-Semitic to be allowed to testify, that he should be silenced simply because of his anti-Semitism, which was completely manufactured uh, by the Democrats who are trying to suppress his, his, his right to speak. But the other uh, issue that they were, um, they were looking at was the Hunter Biden with the laptop. And by the way, you know, since my last podcast, right, Donald Trump again came out and revealed that he's probably going to get indicted again for a third time uh, regarding January 6th. And I don't really know, you know, like what the what the charges are going to be. But apparently they've got more charges trumped up against Trump uh, for for January 6th. Meanwhile, meanwhile, they completely ignore what's going on with Hunter Biden and the, the big guy. I mean, look at the newest uh, revelation, new documents that were just released, I think, yesterday, just confirming uh, that the Bidens were paid this. $10 million bribe, $5 million uh, to Hunter and $5 million to the big guy, um, Joe Biden, in order to apply political pressure right in the Ukraine to help this Ukrainian oil company solve a problem. They were able to pay off the Bidens. And in the, the, uh, the documents that were released, they're even referencing the fact that, well, you know, Biden is not really that smart or Hunter. We got to keep him on the payroll anyway, but we got to find somebody who actually understands something about oil and gas because, you know, these guys don't know anything, but we need to keep them on. And Hunter is going to take care of this problem through his dad. We've got this problem and we have to pay off these guys. But don't worry, because, you know, Biden is going to take care of it. I mean, these are serious, serious crimes. And it seems like there's plenty of evidence to at least bring charges. Now, there's probably enough evidence for a conviction, but there's certainly enough evidence to file charges, yet nothing is happening, right? All we're, we're focusing on another indictment for Donald Trump, and we're ignoring the fact that we have a sitting U.S. president that has basically committed acts of treason while he was vice president, and who knows what he's done uh, while he was president. But again, getting back to uh, the particular hearing, it's very obvious from all of the stuff uh, that has come out that the Biden campaign was able to convince social media, Twitter, uh, Facebook, to bury the Hunter Biden story of the laptop by labeling it fake news, by claiming it was some kind of Russian propaganda to influence the election. And so they got social media to bury the story. And it's pretty apparent that had that not happened, had the story been told, had people been allowed to share the story, and it really started with the New York Post, right? But had that story been allowed to organically grow had there been appropriate media coverage of what was revealed in the Hunter Biden laptop, it's very likely that the results of the 2020 election would have been different. 
that Donald Trump would have been reelected had the media fairly covered the election. So everybody wants to talk about the fact that, oh, Trump was talking about the election was rigged. The election wasn't what un- was unfair. Forget about all that, whether the votes were rigged or not. It was rigged in the media. It was rigged by a collusion between the Biden camp and the media to deceive the voters, to not allowing the voters to hear a story that would have been detrimental to the Biden campaign. That is the real story, I think, of the 2020 election. Forget about what might happen at the polls, right? It was that effort because the election, I mean, it swung on a few states, right? But four or five states that could have gone either way, right? Uh, that's how Trump, Trump won. You know, uh, the states that he won could have gone the other way. They were pretty close. And then he lost those you know, states. But had the news been allowed to spread, it's very likely that Trump would have won. So he obviously had a right to be pissed off about the coverage and about having been falsely accused. But now they're trying to accuse him again of another crime because he is protesting the election. And again, just like with freedom of speech, you've got to be able to protest an election. I mean, you can't say that if you believe an election wasn't fair, that you can't say anything about it. You have to be able to say something. In fact, elections have been contested ever since we've had an election. How many people demand a recount, right? And they, you know, uh, it happens all the time that people contest elections. Elections have to be contested because if I'm holding an election and I know that it's beyond contesting, well, then why not cheat? Why not rig it? If I never have to worry about being challenged, if it's somehow illegal to question the results, well, then how do you know the elections are fair? You have to have some accountability. You have to be able to withstand a challenge. And, you know, can people protest or people keep talking about, oh, you know, January 6th, people went down, they protested. So what they protested, they keep wanting, they keep wanting to call what happened on January 6th insurrection as if they actually went down there to overthrow the government. How are you going to overthrow the government without any weapons when all you have is cell phones and you're taking selfies? What, What kind of, what kind of insurrection is that? And of course, you know, they get down there and the Capitol Hill police are escorting these people into the Capitol building, you know, opening up locked doors. Here you go. I mean, nobody thought they were doing anything wrong, at least the majority of people. Uh, but this has all been spun by the media <clears throat> the same way they went after me. I talked about this again on my last podcast. The government wanted to pretend that I was using my bank to help criminals launder money and evade taxes. And how did they do that? They got the media to do their dirty work. <clears throat> the media went out and told the government's lie for the government. <clears throat> the government wasn't able to tell the lie themselves. They had the media do it. <clears throat> Although then to protect the media, because you know I sued for defamation, they went out and told the lie themselves when they had the press conference down in, in, in Puerto Rico. But more proof again, that the media is colluding with the government is that, sure, the New York Times was willing to report that I was under investigation for money laundering and tax evasion. They were willing to write that story. The story that they refused to write is that the investigation found nothing, that it turns out that I wasn't guilty 
of money laundering and tax evasion. They don't want to write that story. As far as they're concerned, there is no story anymore. Now, of course, if I was indicted, well, it would have been all over the New York Times, right? They would have wrote that story. But the fact that they didn't find any evidence to even charge me with a crime, the story is over. And of course, they were willing to write the story about 60 minutes and about me walking out on the interview. Oh, Peter Schiff walks out on this 60 minutes interview as if I had something to hide. But when I sue 60 minutes for defamation and I win, they don't want to write that story. You know, the New York Times didn't get sued. I didn't sue the Times. And 60 Minutes Australia actually used that against me. They tried to say that I should have sued the Times. And because I didn't sue the Times, that they shouldn't be liable, which was BS. But there were reasons I didn't sue the Times. One was because the 60 Minutes stuff came out first. And had I sued the Times, the Times could have said, well, we were just relying on 60 Minutes. We relied on uh, these other stories and therefore, we had a reasonable basis for what we said. And I, I thought that they could have used that. Also, it's harder to win a defamation lawsuit in the U.S. when you're a public person because you have to prove malice. So not only would I have to prove that the statements were false, which I could have easily done, but I would have to prove that 60 Minutes was malicious or, or the New York Times was malicious in their reporting. But given the fact that they could say, well, we were just using 60 minutes as a source, I didn't think I could prove malice. And that was the advice I got from 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 counsel. So I, I didn't sue them. Right. But you would think, hey, I didn't sue you guys. <clears throat> you can at least set the record straight. You could at least say, hey, remember, we wrote this article uh, about uh, Europe Pacific Bank and Peter Schiff and they were under investigation. Turns out they didn't do anything wrong. But the bigger story. The one that they refuse to write is the fact that their reporting of the investigation destroyed the bank, even though it was completely innocent, even though we didn't do anything wrong. The bank is gone. Why? Because the media killed it by prematurely reporting guilt or just reporting the investigation. Because once you report that somebody's being investigated, well, they might as well be guilty. After all, why else would they be investigated? But this is what they did with the Hunter Biden. This is what they're doing now uh, uh, with Trump, uh, what they're doing with uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. The media is crafting a narrative and they're working with the government to push this political agenda. All of this is obvious that this is going on. And it is very frustrating to actually be dealing with it personally, but watching the whole thing transpire. There has got to be a big backlash. That's one of the reasons that I'm hoping that I can get some type of congressional investigation of the circumstances surrounding what happened to me, because I think all this is important, because I think there's enough information here that, and especially if a congressional hearing can get a lot of these documents that I'm not able to get, that the government is able to hide, to actually show how this is working how the government uh, uh, conspires with the media to deceive the public. You know, because if I can show it with me, then you could show it on a, on a, on a much broader uh, spectrum. But this is exactly what's going on. So that's why these hearings, and if you haven't watched it, you know, it's I don't know, a couple of hours, uh, but it's worth watching. Uh, uh, and, and, and it's interesting too, uh, um, that, the, the, the Democrats 
to watch them, how they're attacking um, Robert Kennedy, and then to see the Republicans have to come to his defense. I can understand the political strategy there, but it's the irony, I think, that is most important uh, rather than the politics. And the fact that you do have to have some Republicans that are still standing up uh, for for freedom of speech. It used to be uh, something that the Democrats at least claim to care about. They don't care about it at all anymore. The only speech that they want to protect is speech that they agree with. And they want to completely censor anybody who says anything uh, with which they disagree or they find offensive. Well, that to me is extremely offensive as an American, as a libertarian. Everybody should be offended uh, by what is currently happening. Anyway, that's it for today's podcast. I will be back home, uh, or not home, home is Puerto Rico. I'm not going to be back in Puerto Rico probably until about the 10th of, of, of August, uh, which is actually coming up. So it's not that far away, but I will be back uh, back in Connecticut for the next uh, live episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. So take care, everybody, and bye for now.